This edition of the EdSurge On Air podcast is brought to you by the EdSurge Fusion Conference, an invitation-only event for school and district leaders. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the EdSurge On Air podcast. I'm your co-host, Mary Jo Matta. A few weeks ago, while perusing Twitter for news stories, a few folks on the EdSurge team came across a tweet by math blogger, TED Talker, and former teacher Dan Meyer. He had recently read an EdSurge article regarding struggles that had taken place during a Fulton County Schools personalized learning initiative in Atlanta. And in response, he tweeted, Can you send me a calendar invite to the meeting where we question the core assumptions of personalized learning? Now, okay, this invitation wasn't exactly directed at anyone in particular, but we decided to, well, take him up on the offer. And last week, Meyer joined in on a very special Google Hangout on air for a live discussion around that exact topic. We discuss the core assumptions of personalized learning, where Meyer thinks personalized learning helps or hurts classroom learning, and how technology fits into all of this. And we're going to get to that discussion right after this. The EdSurge Fusion Conference is an invitation-only event for school and district leaders from around the country. They'll be coming together in the San Francisco Bay Area from November 1st to the 3rd to talk about personalized learning and school transformation. If this sounds interesting to you, please request an invitation or learn about sponsorship opportunities by going to the following bit.ly link bit.ly slash edsurgefusion. That's one word. Again, bit.ly slash edsurgefusion. All right, listeners, welcome back. Now, we're going to get into that interview with Dan Meyer in just a few moments, but a couple of things to consider. Now, first of all, we did conduct this as a Google Hangout on air, so you may notice that there's a couple parts where there's some clicks on the keyboard, as well as references to a chat that was happening while the actual talk was going on. So you can just ignore that stuff. Ready to hear about what Dan Meyer thinks about the core assumptions of personalized learning? Here we go. I would be remiss if we didn't start out with the basics, which is what the heck do you, not not other places, nonprofits, other teachers, what do you define as personalized learning? Yeah, it's a great question and a very contested answer. I'd say there's a, a couple of key parts that are non-negotiables. Um, and from there, this like... Uh, you can find some flexibility. So for instance, um, competency-based grading seems like really important where students can um, demonstrate their competency on a given course or you know, sub-concepts of the course whenever they want to. That whenever you hit uh, the end of Algebra 1, if two students know the same about Algebra, they should, uh, they should progress in, in the same direction in their, in their learning. They should both get the same grade, that um, the pace of that learning, the, the schedule of it should not matter. Uh, that that's one. Um, the other is uh, that I think is um, just largely non-negotiable um, is this idea of, that technology should play some part in helping students learn at their own pace. Um, so th this comes from um, the Bloom study is cited a lot, where uh, Bloom found out that found like enormous gains for tutoring, which is a, at this point day and age like a, a kind of obvious point to a lot of us. But back when that study came out, it was a pretty serious deal that when you when you gave someone a one-on-one -on -one tutor. Um, they learned 
loads more than without that. And so the idea then, I think uh, another one more non-negotiable is that technology should play a role in achieving this vision. And I think that's that's less that's more of a byproduct of those those two assumptions that it's just really hard to do it without um, to accomplish those two goals without some technological help. Um, the idea is that uh, it, you know how can you get a, this? I'm a teacher. I have 40 students. Um, how can I get myself to, to duplicate and duplicate and make copies of myself 40 times um, to help out with students side by side. It's impossible, therefore, enter technology. Those in my mind are some of the core assumptions I see across lots of different models. Um, there are some that were mentioned by the RAND study. Others are less um, commonly implemented, like for instance, um, changes to the schedule of the day. Um, some will cite as a non-negotiable. I don't see that quite as often when I look at, at, at um, personalized learning schools. Um, it's, it's done unevenly if it's done at all. Um, and then also some changes to the physical space of the class and the school is also sometimes cited as a really important part of personalized learning. I just don't find it as useful to talk about that since it's less commonly implemented. So let's talk, I want to step back for a second before we get into kind of the differences and, you know, where does the tool come in? Where does technology come in? Pedagogy. In the Atlanta piece that we published, one of the educators in there described the key to personalized learning as, and I'm going to do a direct quote here, the idea of the teacher transferring ownership of learning to students so they can become self-directed learners. Now, how, whatever mechanism you implement to allow that to happen, do you agree or disagree that that is the key to this concept of personalized learning? This is, uh, I, I love the question. I love the statement. Uh, at one point in our uh, setup of this talk, we proposed a list of like taboo words, a la the game show Taboo, where um, you and I would be sitting on top of electrified seating pads or whatever, and if either one of us said a certain word chosen by the other, it, it's, it's uh, yeah, at some point we should do that. And so I, my goal as the as a person representing in some ways a more traditional style of, of instruction, less less personalized um, and emphasizing certain parts of math, um, I, I don't want to def default to some lazy cliches. And I think there, those exist on both sides. So um, ownership of learning and self-directed learning, in my mind, are um, overused cliches, overused to the point of, of meaninglessness. I'm going to do my best to reckon with them, but if, if I start to go on interpret them in a way that you think is incorrect, like st set me straight here. So I, I when I think of the, the best of personalized learning, but I, the core assumptions I love, uh, that isn't one of them. I think there's a lot of evidence that students um, do a pretty poor job of uh, directing themselves like it for, and I'll make a metaphor to like uh, a trainer at the gym like my when I go to the gym it's it's a pretty rare day that I push myself consistently to be at like my my heart rate in the red you know working really hard um, I want to like slack a bit I want to do exercises in ways that are um, that, that accommodate my limitations and laziness and so one of the the benefits of having a teacher who has a more global view of, of the subject is that they can push you in ways they can direct you in ways that keep your brain in the red zone that's, that's one aspect that I think where teachers are, are super valuable. I'm not sure it's even it's possible for students to provoke themselves in the ways that teachers can provoke themselves, provoke those students. Um, the, the part that I love about, about personalized learning, the assumption I love, is um, the idea that every student in class should be challenged, should feel challenged in, the, in that mental red zone um, for large portions of the day. Like every day, every hour, um, we'll burn a kid out. But I love the, I, 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 it makes me sad as it does um, personalized learning partisans, that students sit in class either overwhelmed by material that is too difficult for them or underwhelmed by material that's too easy for them. That part is where I am in full alignment with um, the most partisan of, of personalized learning proponent. And uh, 
where we differ is how to do it. So then the ownership piece that you spoke about, you know, there is something cliche about how people discuss it, but the implementation piece of it doesn't necessarily, necessarily seem cliche. I mean, don't we want to assume that we're training students to be able to take ownership of the work that they're doing in the sense that they feel responsible for it and they feel proud of the work that they're producing? So like proud of the work that they're producing, very uncliche description of a student in a classroom. Love it, get behind it. Um, students have metacognition where they, they know what they know and know what they don't know and where they're going next. Uh, love it, uh, all of that. There's a learner profiles came up in the RAND study as being one less commonly, less uh, or more unevenly implemented part of, of PL, which I'll just start using from now on. Um, and that I, I'm in favor of students knowing what they know and don't know and where they're going next and experiencing some agency there. I just, in the cliche, it leaves a lot of room for me to step in and say, I'm, I'm not sure what this means. And there's part of it, that I don't know if it's possible or even advisable. So then you're using sort of two words, not necessarily interchangeably, but the concept of cliche and the concept of assumptions aren't necessarily the same thing. When it comes to the assumptions behind personalized learning, what do you question as the biggest potentially damaging assumptions about what personalized learning is looking like right now in classroom and district implementation? Yeah, the biggest assumption I question is the degree to which technology can accommodate, um, can, can uh, replaces the word that will set off alarm bells. Um, technology is not up to the task. I question the assumption that technology can do what we want technology to do. Uh, we asked technology to do a couple things that I don't think in 2017 it does a, a good job of or an adequate job of. And one is to be the human tutor at the side of the student. We overestimate the ability of a computer, like we have 40 computers. That's like having 40 human tutors. Uh, we vastly overestimate that. We can talk about specifics. Uh, and also the ability of the computer to assess student mastery in a competency-based system. I've run as a teacher, the math teacher competency-based um, grading, and it was entirely on paper. And there's aspects of that that were a bummer for me. It was a lot of like hand grading, but I felt so much confidence that when I said, yes, you're competent, like that meant something. And there's a lot of ways we could talk about where computers, because of the limitations of what can go into the box and what they're able to understand, the box can understand, um, it, it diminishes uh, the ability, it, uh, the computer does not reach the level of the human tutor at assessing competency. I don't necessarily agree with you because having been a teacher myself, the concept of a computer replacing the role that I played in the classroom is frankly terrifying, but also- I, 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 did, try to, I did try to withdraw the R word, okay? I, I did try, can we just like strike that from the record? I'm looking at, I see that uh, in the comments on the uh, the Google, uh, or I'm sorry, the YouTube chat, nobody seems to be up in arms about it. So I think that you slid past that one. I didn't say it. I didn't say it. I don't, that's, I, I realize that, you know, it's it's like the, it's the classic, like not, not all personalized learning technologists, you know, like no one, no one wants to replace teachers. Uh, everyone's very conscious of like not even coming close to that rhetoric. And I'm not going to like put that on anybody because I realize that's where we're at. Yes and no, because I would say that maybe people don't necessarily want to talk about it, but I certainly see some actions on behalf of some districts and some tech companies that seem to suggest otherwise. But nonetheless, let's talk about then what role you do think that tech can play, because obviously there is a role for it. And 
I can tell you, I mean, and you experienced this yourself as a teacher with many years of experience, that the idea of me personalizing education for my group of 126 graders in one year basically made me want to jump off a cliff because the concept of that is just incredibly overwhelming. And so talk to me about the role then that tech can play. If it can play a role, a limited role, what role is that then? Uh, well, I mean, I work for an ed tech startup called Desmos. We're making a uh, math ed tech for the future classes. So like I, I you know, I'm, I'm bought into tech um, in certain uses. So there's a few things that I, lo- where I, I love about technology. Um, one is the ability to pose multimedia rich problems to students to, to bring the world in from out there in a way that is uh, mathematizable. And you can involve students in that process of mathematizing the world in a way that paper just can't do. And another, another that's related is the ability for technology to let me um, to go deeper into a problem, um, which brings in more students rather than the, the, the current tech implementation, which is to um, put students along the surface of a pond um, that runs an inch, an inch deep and have them skip across the different subjects. So what I mean by that is uh, if I were to show, I can, I can give a student a word problem about the Eiffel Tower and the angles formed by its various struts and sides or whatever. Um, and that's like a, an intimidating problem. It's word problem as posed of a, a student has to recall like the, the formula and, and plug that in. And I do lose a load of students straight off the jump. Like I lose the, the top set, um, already knew it. The bottom set struggles to comprehend it. So instead what I wanna do is I wanna just pose a photo of the Eiffel Tower and ask students, what questions do you have here? What do you notice? Ask for an estimate about the angle, um, show several different towers side by side, which angle is greater, um, which one doesn't belong. There's loads of questions to ask that make a, a certain task run deeper and so that students who struggle can move through uh, the, the, the first you know, five feet of the task and the students who are ready for the challenge can go much deeper in the task. That's, that's the model of personalization that you'll find um, a lot of uh, uh, mathematicians and math teachers uh, who are more skeptical of PL will adhere, adhere to. And, and tech allows me to do that. Like when I have paper, I've got to pose that problem in a way uh, that locks out loads of students. But when I have um, our activity builder or even just like a keynote deck, uh, projector, I'm able to pose problems in ways that where students can personalize how deep in the problem they go. And then talk to me a little bit more about the assessment piece, because I'm also looking, I'm seeing that on the live chat, a number of people are saying that um, they're, they're essentially agreeing with what you said, that computers cannot assess work with the same efficiency as humans, that there does seem to lead, be a little bit of back and forth between that. What do you think then is the tech and the role of assessing learning? Yeah, I, I think uh, I would just take a small exception to that statement. Computers are very efficient at doing tasks that I don't think should be done at all. So like, and by, by which I mean like um, offering students videos of people talking at them about sophisticated math concepts, like computers do that very efficiently. I don't think it should be done um, in the way that it is currently. As far as the practice goes, um, what, I, what I think is that uh, Computers do a very good job, for instance, of taking teacher input, teacher assessment, a teacher grading uh, or feedback on student thinking, and storing that somewhere in a way that parents can view, administrators can view, uh, student and teacher can view. Um, so, like as a teacher, I do I want to store that feedback in the device so that um, ever all the stakeholders see that personalized learning plan. But where I'm nervous is about computers being the one to assign that student a a score, a mark, a grade. Um, because and to, to elaborate, what I see in a lot of these systems, these platforms that are purchased, is a lot of multiple choice, a lot of numerical response, and, and uh, 
learning that is like not the learning that we would say to ourselves like yes this is the ideal way to assess student understanding but the the kind of learning that is uh, uh ch that's cheapest and easiest for computers to do so the first principle is like what can a computer do let's do that not what's good for the learning let's do that so um that's the stuff that makes me nervous what i'd love to see is students doing those kind of low level uh objective response numerical response items to kind of level up and then the teacher receives those students and gives the student an argument type prompt or an explain type prompt. Um, the sort of prompt that computers just can't assess, so they're just not, they're not given to students. And then the teacher's the one that then puts that, makes the assessment that, okay, like you weren't just gaming, uh, you know, the algorithm, you weren't just like, you know, pattern matching and guess and checking, you've actually got this, enters that in the computer, you're on to the next thing. And my follow-up response to you is going to be basically what you just said is what I've said to folks here in Silicon Valley. For those of you that don't know, we are located in um, Burlingame, California. And the response I've gotten from a few folks who aren't necessarily in K-12 or higher ed, but have thoughts because everybody went to school, so everyone has thoughts, is, well, artificial intelligence will account for that. Someday computers will basically be able to do some of those forms of assessment that rely a bit more on human cognition right now. What would your response be to that person? Hey, 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 hey fingers crossed, right? You know, sure. Hey, I mean, I'm not opposed. Uh, I, I mean, I don't see it. I don't see it happening in 2017. Like I wanna, like what are we gonna do? Like put these systems in place and then like, you know, so the kids between now and, you know, 2024 or whenever, you know, the singularity happens, like, they're gonna get get screwed, and then the, after that, the students are, you know, their their learning is, you know, honored and well assessed. Like we can't do that. Of course. All right. Not to cut this in the middle, but I do want to hop into a little bit more focusing on some of the research that you mentioned. Um, Doug Levin, who I think is actually on this hangout right now, um, he did write about the Rand study that you referenced, and he pointed out that there was a slight very small, but nonetheless, a slight drop in the feeling of safety that students had if they were in personalized learning programs compared to students in regular programs. Now, I do want to clarify that it was a very small drop, but it was a drop nonetheless, and you know, doesn't mean that it should necessarily be ever overlooked because of that. So I'm curious, what do you think leads to those sentiments? Yeah, I think it was like on the order of 15% decrease in the students who said strongly agree or agree to that, that statement. Uh, it was the one that had the, the largest drop. There are other statements where the difference was in favor of non-PL schools, but um, the difference was slight. That one was pretty striking. And in addition, it was uh, the other one was there is at least one adult in a school who knows me well. And I was grateful for Doug for bringing that up. It definitely provoked me to get into the actual study itself, which had a lot of complicated findings in, in favor of and against PL. Um, and I'll just offer my own speculation about what this is. And it draws from the online learning research uh, for higher ed, um, which finds that when, uh, when students are learning online, their feelings of belonging drop. Um, and that also contributes to dropping out. And, um, you, you know, the, these studies were of, middle school students in some cases who don't have the option of dropping out, but that that sentiment of like, I got to punch out of this is reflected in other ways, I think, in this survey here. And, and the more like the, getting one level closer to the ground here, um, when you walk into some of these implementations of personalized learning, you see students in, you know, warehouses or, you know, resembling call centers, and they, they're plugged into headphones into their computers, and they're watching videos of people talk at them, some adult that they don't know. Um, for, for long periods without a check-in from a human being, like 
like what, what do we really think is going to happen here? And this is where I just think that, you know, the current tech runs into the laws of gravity a little bit, like the laws of, of, uh, of, the, of the universe where like teaching to some degree for most people is a relational event. Like it, it's formed, learning is formed of relationships between people and in dialogue, not for everybody, not all the time, but for a, a lot of people, that's how, that's how we learn, how we enjoy learning. And so that requires lots of humans. Like if you wanna scale that up, the idea is yes, computers do a lot of things at scale, we'll use those, but why do we anticipate that we can you know, scale up humans by using computers? Do you think then that we're at risk of moving from more of a community group-based mentality in schools to more of an individual-based mentality? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I couldn't have said it better. Um, that uh, you know, in my where I work at Desmos, we're not like looking to individualize learning. That's how we think of it. Like a, it's a where you you as an individual. It's like what what am I learning? You know, what am I watching? What am I what? assessment am I taking? Like we're in favor of a, of a, a learning that is social and creative. So in like our efforts are at finding ways to make these devices, phones and computers that students love outside of class resemble uh, what they do inside of class. So like, for instance, think about what students are loving to do with their phones outside of class. Like they're creating and they're sharing those creations. They're creating snaps and stories and text messages and videos and photos. And they share those with, with people around them in their networks to get feedback on them, find out what triggers, what they like. Um, and, but you bring those same devices into a, a school setting and it's like they, they switch into airplane mode, essentially. Um, which for anybody who's had a phone knows like that's the, the worst way for a phone to be. Like whenever you land on the plane, like you immediately switch out of airplane mode because um, that's the way your device is best when, when the world is coming into it. But think about like, you know, the way these computers are used, you could, in personalized learning, you could be in a bunker, you know, five miles below the surface of the earth, um, you know, just t t talking to the machine. I enter my thinking of the machine, the machine talks back to me. I am not connected to my peers at all. So that's that's the risk, I think. Uh, you, you said like a, a individualized learning. That's what we're seeing. And we shouldn't be surprised that, that students experience that dissonance of like, this thing is awesome elsewhere. Why is it not awesome when I step in the four walls of my classroom? Though on the other side of that, more of an individualistic perspective would say it's good to focus more on the individual because then you understand more. You, kids don't get lost in the group. The high performers and the low performers don't sort of get lost in the midst of the mid performers. What's your response to that then? I'm, I'm gen generally in favor of some balance. Yes, there's sometimes, especially for practice, where students will be practicing different different things. But I think we vastly underestimate the value of discussion and explanation um, as far as it tells you what you actually know. So, like, I'm 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 you know, an hour ago, I'm thinking about what what I might say here, and as I'm saying it in my head, I'm like, yeah, nailed it. Like, I've got this. Um, but then it's just amazing to me how the second I open my mouth and start to articulate it and I start to realize the limitations of my imagination to tell me what I knew about this subject. And then to see you and, you know, to observe your face as you respond to things I'm saying and the, the follow-up questions you have, you're pushing on ways in which I've been unclear or there's other angles to this, this matter that I didn't anticipate. So that doesn't happen, you know, maybe when in our, you know, our AI future, that'll happen, but like, it doesn't happen with me and the per the video of the person in front of me. Okay. Well, aside from just the issue of kind of this group versus individual mentality, 
One of the issues or potential issues that um, one of our reporters actually here at EdSearch brought up um, that she was curious for me to talk to you about was the, the claim that personalized learning might amp up um, surveillance of students in schools. I mean, you can even see it with certain models, which I won't necessarily name right now, but certain models that have brought video surveillance into the classroom to have a constant stream of what students are doing on the regular in order to quote unquote, tailor the instruction to their behaviors. So let me ask you this, where do you think privacy stops and begins for students in a personalized learning environment? Like, is there a certain amount of surveillance that's okay and then a certain amount that's too much? Uh, I'm sure yes. Like I'm sure the answer to that question is yes. Uh, my thoughts are much less nuanced than the thoughts of say, I think uh, Bill Fitzgerald is someone who's uh, offered us some advice periodically at Desmos on how to craft our own privacy policies. Um, and like I, I we, you gotta get, get him on a call and others. Um, but I, I tend to, I'm really inspired by Apple's model of how they handle data collection, which is uh, largely internal to the phone that you're using. And then all the the AI crunching um, and the recommendations that come from that, it's internal to the phone. It doesn't go up into the cloud. It's not repurposed and repackaged and, and resold to advertisers. That's a model that I would love to, you know, I, I hope that the people who are pursuing these models um, would think about that, who would think about like, what is, what is the least I actually have to capture? What is the least that I need to record um, on our servers? What can be stored locally in the browser? Um, and like, how long do I have to hold on to this? Like, should, should there's, there's this website called a uh, brilliant, amazing math challenges, love them. Um, but I hate answering the questions because I, like I sometimes get them wrong and I know that their, what their model is, is to, to package up the smart people for resale, those identities to like universities and to, to companies. And so like, I know that my wrong answer is not just like my own personal, uh, you know, like marker of improvement needed. It's like something that is like, signaling this person is not worthy of being packaged and resold it it gets to me and uh so th there's those kinds of that'd be an area where i think the lack of privacy around my thinking there is is a bummer and that'd be that, that crosses a line for me and there's but like I, I like that it might recommend based on where i'm at like maybe a problem that i, I should try and think about that could be a, a positive outcome so there's definitely a balance and i'm not the person to speak with a lot of precision and nuance to that balance it's funny because as i'm sitting here listening to you i keep thinking to myself how humanizing this experience is between the two of us because i think of you as sort of your twitter personality and now <laughs> i'm seeing you in more of your live personality and it makes me think to myself at what point when we survey students or treat them as data as opposed to individuals are we turning them into more kind of shells of who they are as opposed to the actual human sides of who they are. So that's something for the audience to consider. But I want to get to the last couple of questions before we give um, the audience out there a couple of minutes at the end for Q&A. Um, we're probably going to wrap this in about 20 minutes. So if you have any questions, go ahead and throw them in live chat right now. Um, but a couple of last questions for you, Dan. You and I talked about this before we hopped on the call. A lot of school models are using the phrase personalized learning in their collateral and their advertising on their websites these days. You know, folks like Summit Public Schools and Milpitas and Rocketship are three of the ones that come to mind, all in California, granted, but all have somewhat diverse student bodies. Do you have any particular models out there that you think, uh, this is just the worst? Or on the other side of that, any folks or implementations or models that you think, yes, this is this is good? 
Yeah, I mean, Summit's a really interesting one. We had, had a lot of conversations with their director of math, Zach Miller, and they're a group. That I, I admire them in one particular way, especially, and that's that they have really rethought their model. They, in, a, in an area where we don't, Silicon Valley, where we don't um, give, we, we really value self-confidence and this sense of inevitability to your, your hero narrative, they've said, like, eh, this didn't really work out so well. I'm excited about what they're up to. Um, speaking to the, their previous model, they had students, they had, like, kind of two conceptions of learning. One was... Um, Big projects, quarter long, really fun. Students love them, right? And then the other side was like playlists where you learn the guts, the nuts and bolts uh, to help you do those projects. And as I understand it from a lot of different sources, uh, public sources, um, when they've spoken about it, that uh, the, the nuts and bolts happen in playlists where students would like go through and they would like watch someone talk about the thing. Um, or they would read someone's summary of how to find the slope of a line, let's say. And uh, to hear them talk about what they realize is that students really struggle to learn like that. It's not how we know learning works. It, it did That model does nothing to surface what students already know and then build on that. If you think about how you talk with someone, you don't know the person, you're trying to teach them something, you try to dredge up what they know so you know what kind of like resources you have to build on um, and, and analogize from there. That model can't do that. It starts at a very formal level. Here's the definitions, here's the terms, watch this operation, now you do it. Um, so to watch them realize that they, they needed to um, in inject a human element even into the, the introduction of, of new learning. So now, as I understand it, they have a third element, like a conceptual learning element where they introduce concepts and the practice comes a bit later and the projects after that. Seems like a, a model that really respects how we know humans learn and like to learn. Um, it's going to be, I think, more human capital intensive. Because this, this third edition, this conceptual learning, it requires humans to say, what do you know? And let's talk about that. Um, but like, great. We need to, if we want good learning, we need to spend on good teaching. That seems uh, uh, uncontroversial in, in my head anyway. So I love that. I, I'm always, always, always uh, skeptical if I walk into a room that is quiet. Uh, our activities that we design at Desmos are built for two to one on laptops. We love a, a, a two to one ratio with students uh, arguing and discussing some object on the screen. Love that. Uh, always nervous when we see students with headphones on, very quietly working on their computer screen. Calls to mind that bunker metaphor I talked about. Um, yeah, like I, I, I would love to see more models. Love to see more models uh, where teachers are able to interact with students one-on-one -on -one to help them, like the trainer in the gym, move to that next uh, next most appropriate challenge. Uh, I haven't seen a lot of those. And the RAND study talked about how like that, that's a, a part of this, this model that is applied unevenly in the, in the country. I'd love to see more. How often do you walk into classrooms where it's completely quiet or the kids are just plugged in? Honestly, less and less. And I'm, uh, I'm really excited. Like I, I'm based in Silicon Valley. So you know the kinds of schools uh, that, that we often find around here that are like super like on the bleeding edge of technology. Um, I'd, I'd say six years ago, it was it was real frequent. I would do I, I like I'm in classes once a month, twice a month. Uh, I'd say like half of those visits were at schools that were the, the students were in this model of PL that was pretty quiet. And I, I really do think um, this is anecdotal, but a certain tide has turned in technology in, in uh, a lot of startups nowadays, even in math, often seen as the most socially isolated discipline, are emphasizing students in conversation with each other. Um, shout out Pear Deck, shout out Classkick, a lot of a lot of different companies that take as their premise, students ought to be in conversation with each other, and our work is to help teachers navigate those conversations. Okay. Well, on the vein of sort of focusing on the good, um, I'm curious to ask this question because somebody from the MIT Office of Digital Learning actually asked this. 
why don't we hear more about the failures in personalized learning? Now, I have my thoughts about this, but I want to let you kind of take this one. And, and what venue are you talking about? Like uh, in, the in, the, in the RAND study, we saw like some failures, some successes. Like what, what, what do you mean here? Here? Um, I'm guessing if the person who put this in wants to clarify, I'm guessing more that there aren't articles, there aren't conversations at conferences, like places where people can actually ask questions directly of the folks where the quote unquote failures have taken place. Though the concept of a failure obviously means different things to different people. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm sure you've got the expertise on this, given your proximity to lots and lots of companies. Uh, but there is... There's a certain hero narrative, a savior narrative. This is the new hot thing. We don't like to publish, even in research studies, negative results. Um, so like every incentive uh, from venture capital on down to even individual teachers like seems to be aligned in, let's make this thing work. Um, and so you know, if I'm in conversation with a teacher, I can tell pretty fast if they're kind of peddling cliches or if they're real, like if they, if they are just too bought in to even think critically about this or like, like, yeah, I've, I've seen some trouble. I've seen some struggles here. The, the, the trouble I've seen, you would not believe. Um, but yeah, I think it really has to do with incentives from the, the media to the venture capital, uh, all invested in this narrative that personalized learning is what's going to, you know, save society from test scores to our GDP. Mm -hmm. I would agree with that. And I will say for all of the successes that folks like summit and rocket ship, and um, Milpitas have had, they've had plenty of setbacks as well. Those narratives just sort of get embedded in the greater stories of success. I, for one, will say if you have a failure story that you're willing to share, we would love to hear it. Um, the stories that have been told around the failure narrative that then sort of show how they got back on the right track oftentimes do very well. And may lead actually to larger amounts of venture capital and grants further down the road once you show that you can turn it around. Um, but that is a great question. I encourage anybody who is in a system or knows of a system that has struggled and um, either turned it around or hasn't turned it around to talk to us because frankly, those stories are oftentimes the most helpful to other folks that are going through the exact same issues. For sure, for sure. Shout out failure. Yes, shout out failure. Woo, hey. Failure is part of the learning process. You're a teacher. I was a teacher. We know this. Uh, Shout out growth mindset. Hashtag growth mindset. <laughs> oh, man. I can't believe that just made its way into this conversation. All right. Uh, let's go with um, a question actually that Angela Cooper asked earlier because she asked it a bit back. And I wanted to see, I was curious what your answer was to this. What would your quote unquote ideal personalized learning classroom look like, Dan? Oh, dang, funny as no object, I'm getting lots of people in there. This is an easy one. You give me lots of money, I'm getting lots of people. Like people who know math, who know students, who love students, who love math, like who are uh, eager to understand student thinking and build on that. Like that's just a no brainer. You give me money, I get people. Uh, and then tech follows. Um, you want to put some some constraints on that. I'll just grant that for the, for the uh, premise for the moment. Um, like I, I'm interested interested in uh, teachers having conversations with students, like the whole group conversations that, that surface ideas in productive ways. So I love the idea of, of students working at different levels on the same task and technology bringing to me uh, interesting different ways of thinking about it from informal and early to formal and well-developed. And then we kind of walk through a few of those and every student benefits uh, from seeing all of those. Um, those kinds of activities are, from experience, very difficult to develop. But once you do, um, the results have been um, pretty fun to watch, at least anecdotally and exper experientially. Would you want administrators to redesign their budgets to allow for more 
personnel as opposed to physical pieces of tech? I mean, it, it's it's not in the administrator's uh, court to decide that like human resources uh, accommodate what, like 80% of a given district's budget on average and technology much less than that. Like you, we couldn't say that the, the administrator like replaced tech with uh, people. There are different budget codes, number one, number two, just you wouldn't get many people um, for the tech, I don't think. Uh, so we're really talking about, you know, more system-wide reprioritization of resources. What's ironic is that there are some states that do seem to be, or cities that do seem to be exploiting certain elements of budgeting structure from the higher ups to make way for that. I think in the city of Minneapolis, it's either in Minneapolis or the state of Minnesota, you actually get, um, special education practitioners in the classroom for very little money. There's a element of the state budget that's accommodated for that. And so what that means is that these CMOs and districts are bringing in, you know, 25 SPED practitioners, which is great, but doesn't always necessarily mean that things flow any easier because with more personnel comes the need for more professional development. But that's a whole separate issue, as is the procurement issue, which you were sort of alluding to a little bit. Um, Okay, let's go into something that Scott Miller asked, and I see that a few folks actually plus this, and I'm curious about this as well. Standardized testing, we know it, we love, hate, more hate, more love, can never really tell. Do you think that standardized testing pushes the implementation of personalized learning into an isolation model? I don't, that's not how I've seen the effect of standardized testing. Uh, I don't think it has an effect one way or the other on the social or individual aspects of learning personally. It's a great question. I'm thinking about real time here. Um, the standardized test is like the, the outcome should be the should assess the outcome of a socialized process. Um, what I think that this the standardized testing does in particular California's assessment pre and post uh, the smarter balance initiatives uh, redesign has been to um, emphasize learning that is uh, of a much more interesting and useful nature than before. Whereas before it was, a, it was just like purely multiple choice. Now there's constructed response, there's evaluate this person's argument, all kinds of questions that emphasize many, many higher orders of mathematical thinking that are more valuable for people who don't go on to STEM careers or higher ed. Um, I would love for more startups and personalized learning platforms to look at that and say, your multiple choice and numeric response items are not preparing students to succeed on those exams. That's why I, and I'm not seeing this. I'm not seeing, I wish that that pulled, I'm, I'm rejecting the premise. I don't, I don't think that the test pulls one way or the other towards socialized or individualized, but what I, I wish, and I, I wish I saw it dragging the item types that students are given in PL platforms um, more towards constructed response, you know, create this line, evaluate this argument. Um, that's what I'd love to see. All right. Well, there's your answer, Scott. And I want to ask this last question as sort of the culminating end to this, um, because it may be sort of hard to tell based on our conversation. And I'm sure I fall on both ends of the spectrum as much as you do. Would you say that you are more or less optimistic about personalized learning as you've seen the word get, quote unquote, some would say bastardized, sort of more prolific in school usage in grant making pl 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 everywhere all the time do you feel more or less optimistic it, the term is just is is almost meaningless in the, in the rand study they just like they they 
beat the drum constantly about how like we chose a bunch of districts that weren't PL districts, but they were doing competency-based grading and they did this part over here, but not that part. And the categorization of, of schools and districts as either PL or non-PL was very challenging. And so I'm just, I'm not optimistic about the term itself as anything but like a signal to the funders that were forward looking and were, you know, share certain values. But I would, I'm much more enthusiastic about the conversations that we're having and the other startups are having other groups that are more specific about what should learning look like? How can tech help? And if we get on that level, um, I'm optimistic that we can show enough pictures of, of learning that is, uh, you know, horrifying and, and you know and gratifying uh, that we can start pushing this conversation in a good direction but how do you think we can continue having these conversations without some of the white noise that takes place when for example personalized learning shows up in 90 out of 100 percent of panel titles at a conference that someone may go to yeah i i think we should all on this call resolve to be a little bit annoying when it's possible and to ask people to clarify their priors um, to define personalized learning in very concrete terms. So no one gets to like jump up to the front and intro a session talking about like, we just want to create self-directed learners who learn at their own pace, um, et cetera, et cetera. But like, so, so what does this mean on the ground level? What, what does a good classroom look like? If I walked into your school, what makes you happy to see? Um, get on that level as fast as possible, as annoyingly as possible. Um, that, that's my resolution. I'm glad we've done that here, I think. Um, and I want to do that in, in more venues when those terms just get bandied around, like we all know what we're talking about. Right. All right, well, you heard it here from Dan first. He wants you to be more annoying. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll slightly change the word to persistent um, and have these conversations with each other and take them offline as much as they are online because we don't have enough offline conversations. Dan, I wanna give you one last minute to say whatever you wanna say, shout it off from the mountaintops, go for it. Just like know what you love about learning and teaching and let's make sure whatever models we use testify that truth. If you ever feel that like twinge, like this is not, this is not living up to my ideals, don't suppress that, uh, steer straight into that and, uh, and change it. This has been the EdSearch On Air podcast. This episode was produced and edited by me, Mary Jo Matta, and advertisements were read by Alice Meyerhoff. You can give us a grade on the quality of this podcast by rating us on iTunes or sending an email to us at feedback at edsearch.com. You can also subscribe on the iPhone podcast app, on Stitcher, on SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back again next week with more on the future of education. We'll see you then.